My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm Mystic Mark, and on today's episode, a returning champion, an old friend of mine, someone who is a fellow New Englander, Ron from New England, joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast yet again. Of course, you know Ron from Alt Media United and the Wicked Planet podcast. That is his podcast with Buckley and the gang, Anonymous Sean. So many great guests that they've had on the show, including yours truly. Uh, Go and check out the Wicked Planet podcast. But first, enjoy this conversation with my pal, Ron from New England. Here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and uh, joining me for, I think, his fourth time on the show. Last time he was on was episode 200. We're almost approaching episode 300 now, and Ron, a.k.a. the Ron from New England, host of the Wicked Planet podcast, is joining me yet again here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We're talking about New Hampshire, and I know one of our common interests is all things strange, mysteries, supernatural, but New Hampshire, you just said, is a place where people can go to hide, at least in some of these towns. And I've heard plenty of stories of people disappearing in New Hampshire, and that doesn't necessarily need to include a supernatural element. There's a lot of wilderness to get lost in. There's a lot of people that could hide to get away with doing bad things. So there are rational explanations, but there are these cases that stick out, especially with New Hampshire, like one that we've talked about before where a rock swallowed a person and this person disappeared. They or seemingly on a normal hike that many people traveled on a daily basis. And turns out there's some Native American lore that on that mountain is a man-eating rock. And some people have made the estimation that, well, hey, maybe this person that vanished was unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time and or the right time and got phased into some other dimension or literally eaten by the rocks. I mean... That's a little bit on the fantastic side, but 
how much of the Wicked Planet podcast do, do you dedicate to looking into that kind of stuff? We've talked about stuff like that before. Yeah, in previous episodes, I mean, we had the New Hampshire Sasquatch guy on, and and, and New Hampshire is actually a hotbed for Sasquatch activity. I mean, you wouldn't think so, and obviously a lot of people don't talk about it, but if you go on the BFRO site, there's a ton of Sasquatch encounters in the state of New Hampshire. And I mean, even to warrant this one gentleman, his name is Evan, and he's on Instagram, New Hampshire Sasquatch Research. And he's been on the show a few times and he talks about not only that, but some of the other occurrences that have happened. Now, there's a lot of strange lore that that surrounds New Hampshire. And it is just like in our town, when my one of my co-hosts, Anonymous Sean, comes on and we talk about how we think this is a cursed town. And there's, a, there's several theories like to substantiate that. That it actually is tied into Masonic things, but, but also that there was some Indians, we'll just call them Indians. I know some of my listeners don't like it when I call them Indians, but that were murdered by the settlers in this town. And in, in the talk is that there was some curses like involved with that. But, but when you get up north of the lakes region, which is which is like, I'm at the southern tip of the lakes region, Lake Winnipesaukee, Winnesquam, Little Squam, Big Squam, the lake where On Golden Pond was filmed. Of course, Winnipesaukee is where all the rich people live. Hollywood actors, Adam Sandler for one, the bigwigs at Microsoft, bigwigs at Amazon, they all got places on the lake up here. And, but when you get, and that's got some sections even around the lake that are pretty like on the, what we call the backside of the lake, because the lake kind of runs north and south. And when you get on what we call the backside of the lake, that means you're over towards the main border. And that stretch between Winnipesaukee and Maine and going into Maine is very remote. It's not heavily populated like at all. Right. But when you get north of the lakes region, then you, then you get into what we call, well, not necessarily the great white, the great North woods, uh, because that's what, that's kind of north of what we call the notch and the notch stands for a Franconia notch. And, and what it is, it's, it's exactly what it says. It's a notch that like where a road weaves through the mountains. Yeah. And even now it's a major highway that kind of necks down into just a two lane road that goes through the notch. It goes past Mount Cannon where they have this big ski area. And they have the tramway that goes to the top of the mountain, which is very cool. I recommend everybody do that. But that's also the mountain where the old man of the mountain profile Stoneface was for who knows how many thousands of years. And he actually fell off the mountain, I want to say 15 years ago now or 20 years ago. It's been quite a while. I can still remember the day that he fell off that mountain. And we just had the anniversary because it was on, when it happened, it happened to be Kentucky Derby weekend. And that is always the first weekend in May. Mm. We just had that anniversary, but when, but that's all part of the White Mountain National Forest. Now we know strange stories. Let's like 411 missing like type stuff has happened in national parks. 
across the whole country. And I don't think it's any different in the White Mountain National Forest, right? Yeah. So the rock swallowing the person story is something that a lot of us have heard, but I'm, I personally am not that familiar with that, but it, 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 it wouldn't surprise me that something crazy is going up there. There's a lot of theories that there's some type of portal up there somewhere right. in the White Mountains. Right. And well, this isn't anything unique to this mountain. Dozens of mountains I've come across and looking into this subject have lore that connects it to subterranean realms or heavenly realms, these sort of transitional places where the earth and the sky meet. People for aeons have gone to the tops of mountains to achieve not only just the feat of being able to climb, but the spiritual sort of awakening that comes with being able to see all of that around you. Just that, I mean, for the human mind is is a big, I mean, it's a big thing, but yeah, this, this is a, such a, it's such a strange area. And it's funny, I think Mount Washington probably has the best marketing of any mountain anywhere. I mean, anywhere you drive in the Northeast, you're, there's a good op odds that you're going to see somebody with a bumper sticker that says this car climbed Mount Washington, right? I mean, so they're, they're definitely getting a lot of people to visit a place that's very remote that has access within a day to some of the biggest cities on the Eastern seaboard, right? Some hu huge populations of people. So it is a recipe for people to go missing, but there seems to be this overwhelming occurrence where the people that go missing are not, they're not lost in ways that you would expect someone to go missing in their remote wilderness. These are not people who are like venturing off on their own. That does happen. But a lot of times these really strange cases where people go missing, they go missing within 10, 15, 20 feet of a group of people that they were with and they're found miles and miles away kind of seems like some sort of portal activity if you ask me well what's unique about mount washington is not only is it one of the highest peaks east of the mississippi now i do be believe there's one peak that's higher but mount washington is unique as it is registered to have the worst weather mm in all of North America. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I do know that the highest wind speeds ever recorded in North America were on the top of Mount Washington, where they have a national weather observatory that's manned 24 seven, 365 days a year up there. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the top of Mount Washington. Have you ever taken the auto road? No, I'd love to, I've been up Really cool experience. I've been up other mountains by car and it's great. I love the efficiency and the thought of somebody to be like, yeah, let's build a road up to the top of that. I love that. But it's definitely, there's a, there's a more of an accomplishment when you make it up by foot. I mean, obviously, but no, I haven't. I haven't. Well, when you're at the top of Mount Washington, of course, the weather changes. Like if you're at the bottom of the mountain and it could be July, just for instance, right? Could be 80, 85 degrees at the bottom. When you get to the top, it's chilly. 
And if you go up like this time of year, like I don't even know if the auto road is even open yet. It might be because we have Memorial Day weekend coming up, right? But the weather changes so drastically from the bottom to the top. And that's why people are cautioned about climbing Mount Washington even this time of year. And now now there's a, a situation where like in the state of New Hampshire now, if you're if you're hiking certain trails, then the trails are open year round. But if you go off trail and you do something stupid or you get lost and you get into a situation where you got to call in help from something that you did that you shouldn't have done, you get a bill for that now. Wow. Yeah, you get a bill and it's tens of thousands of dollars. Oh. Because the rescue people that they send to get you are professionals. That's what their job is. Yeah. Is to go and rescue people. And you don't want to be stuck on Mount Washington in the wintertime, period. Yeah. Out a couple instances in the last year where two people actually were found dead hiking in the White Mountains. And what's unique about it is that they were totally unprepared for the hike that they were going to take. Like they oh, I'm just going to go hike, say, Mount Washington in frigging November. Yikes. And, and that's not a good time to be hiking Mount Washington. And then going off trail. And then once they go off trail, I don't know if it's they get spooked to go off trail if they have some form of encounter and they just, I mean, a trail is clearly marked. You should stay on the trail. And if you go off the trail, it's a big problem. Now, when you're, when you're on Mount Cannon, cause Mount Cannon, the one we were talking about earlier in Franconia Notch, like they have signs on their trails, like literally just telling you in so many ways, do not go off this trail. Just don't go off the trail, stay on the trail. And there's, and there's always a theory, like and Hunter Michonne and I have this theory that in these national forests, there is some type of agreement between like humans and let's just call it non-humans of whatever you could think of that, okay, people are going to stay on the trail. Like you leave them alone. If they get off the trail. Fair game. And something happens to them, they're fair game. Wow. See, now this is something that I'm over here. I'm like, well, hey, Ron, I'm a, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy. I grew up running through the woods. My favorite thing to do would be to go off trail. But as you're suggesting in these national parks, there might be different factors at play. It's not just rock slides and cliffs that you're not expecting that they're warning you of or there might be something more well terrifying waiting for people off the trail rather than just maybe folly and human error you could end up in the the jaws of the Witiko or <laughs> worse right okay so the one thing that we do know about the franconia area and this is where cannon mountain is and cannon mountain also has a sheer cliff and this is where a lot of rock climbers go to climb. Mm. And I think one had an accident and ended up dying in the last year or possibly maybe 16 months. That's pretty dangerous. And, but what else is 
Franconia Notch known for? It's known for the granddaddy of all UFO abduction stories. And that's the story of Barney and Betty Hill that had this whole abduction story that actually hit the news. Like they didn't do a media blackout of that story, like at all back in the day. And I mean, and you can go online and look it all up. It's all kinds of information there. Yeah. And I want to say Betty Hill has a granddaughter or a great granddaughter that has a YouTube channel and they talk a lot about it. I, I think she's, I think she's even like a, a boxer or a martial artist or something. Isn't that, I feel Could like, be. I think there's a woman in mixed martial arts who's related to them. Yeah. It might be their granddaughter, but, uh, what, well, on. what was unique about that too, is that when this happened, I want to say it was in the early sixties and Barney and Betty Hill were an interracial couple. Which nowadays, I mean, it's no big deal, right? It really shouldn't have been a big deal back then. But it, the whole fact that they got abducted by a UFO or extraterrestrial or whatever overshadowed that. Like nothing was ever a big deal wasn't made about that. And just the whole fact that they didn't try to squash that story, I found to be pretty interesting because they, they suffered from lost time. Like, so they recovered a lot of the actual event through hypnosis hmm. because what they, what they had documented in their statements was that they were driving, saw some type of craft and next thing they're like 40 miles down the road. Yeah. Well, like they lost that whole amount of time. They, like this incident occurred in Franconia, right? basically right out front of, of what today is called the Indian Head Resort. And by the time they came to, to recollect anything or come to or, or whatever you want to call it, they were all the way down in the town of Ashland, which is, okay, so it's probably not 40 miles from Ashland to Franconia. Realistically, it's probably about 25 miles or 30 miles down, down the highway. But I want to say when this occurred, this was before the highway went through the notch when it was just Route 3. And Route 3 was the only way you could travel. Now, when I used to ride motorcycles, obviously, when we went to the mountains, we always took Route 3 because it's very scenic. It goes through all the little towns and stuff like that. And, like, it's a nice way to go for sightseeing. Now they got Interstate 93 that just goes from Massachusetts and just blows your attention right directly to the mountains. But back in the day, it was a little different. Not only is there a hotbed of UFO activity around this particular area, there's also a lot of cryptid activity in this area, which just leads me to believe that there is some type of paranormal oddity like happening in these mountains. And there's a lot of folklore surrounding these mountains. And not only that, when you get out of that area, so the White Mountains covers a long way, like a long, huge area. But even when you get outside of the National Forest, you're still in the mountains, right? So then you have the legend of Mount Chikora, which we talked about like years ago when you first were starting your show, about the, about the Indian chief that went off to war and he left his son with, some settlers that he was friendly with, 
and Chikora and his, his warriors went off to this battle against another Indian nation. And when he came back, his son had passed away in the time that he was gone. Well, his son had contracted some type of disease or sickness or whatever, and just got sick and died. Well, Chikora didn't take that very well, of course, blame the settlers for that. So I, I'm not sure what she, now I can't remember, it's been a long time since I read the story, but Chikora basically declared war on this family. So they had this fight back and forth and this farmer, settler guy, chased Chikora all the way to the top of this mountain. And that is when he mortally wounded Chikora and Chikora, in his dying words, cursed the whole area. And I guess that curse held for 50, 60 years or something like that. But they ended up naming the mountain after him. So it's called Mount Chikora. And it's kind of on the north. It's north of the lake, kind of in, in the mountains. It's in a town called Ossipee which is just like at the beginning of the, of the White Mountain National Forest. Anyways, really cool story for people if they wanted to check that out. But I've heard, even on Sasquatch Chronicles, like several encounters of Sasquatch that took place in the same general area of like Ossipee, the town of Glen, the town of Conway, and then... Oh, okay, so Glen is north of Conway. Now, when you start getting up to Glen, well, there's documented Sasquatch encounters that happened on in this area called Bear Notch. And Bear Notch is a road that goes, and it's a seasonal road. You can't travel it in the winter. And that hooks up to what we call the Kangamongas Highway, which is another cut-through road that takes you from one side of the mountain up the mountain to Kangamangas Pass, and then you come back down and it brings you down into the town of Woodstock, which is right next to Franconia. So this whole Franconia region in the Mount Washington region got some crazy stuff going on there. I mean, it's almost like people, now I don't want to call it the suicide mountain, but but if you look into some of the things that have happened on Mount Washington, there's a few parallels between that and what's happened at Mount Fuji in Japan, which you're probably familiar with the story of the suicide forest of Mount Fuji. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's... So it's almost like I, I've had been having this theory that sometimes people go there to like purposely get lost of their way of committing suicide or they go there to commit suicide or, or something along that lines. A lot of people have like very much disagree with my theory on that, but it's just my theory. Cause you know, things, things are going on there in a lot of these things that are happening with these Sas these Sasquatch encounters that they have up there is a lot of times it's just normal people hiking on trails or running on trails or mountain biking on trails. But some of these cases are for when people go off the trails. And then this is when they have these encounters. Right. It's almost like a majority of them are all off trail encounters. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. See now, 
how many encounters happen on the road? Because you imagine that if these beings are just like regular animals, they would cross the road every now and then. If they're highly intelligent beings, which I assume you believe that, I believe that as well, then I think they're smart enough to avoid places where humans are. But have there been a lot of sightings just through people traveling? I mean, I love driving. I would love to find out where the Bigfoot Highway is just to drive, go for a few laps and see what I see. But yeah, is that is that something that's even really a reality or is it mostly people out in okay. the backwoods? Okay, so some of the encounters that they have talked about were actually people just driving down the road mm. and a Sasquatch running out in front of them. Now the encounter crossing the road. Right. Which they do very quickly, it, which leads me to believe that these encounters are probably pretty credible because... If it was a deer running across the road or a moose, like you're gonna you're gonna know that. Because a deer is kind of smart. Like deer are deer are in tune to cars. So sometimes the only time a deer will get hit crossing the road is if they're being chased by something and they're just they're just fight or flight, right? They're 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 in flight mode. Mm. And they cross the road and it just happened to be bad timing. The thing is with moose, sometimes moose are so dumb, they'll just stand in the middle of the road. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> the thing is like, like bears are kind of in tune to cars too, except for bears are really slow when they're crossing the road. Mm. Now, this is how I think that these sightings are not bears because people are like, oh, it's just a bear. Okay, bears just lumber when they cross. Or, I know I've had to stop for bear many times. And they just do, 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 cross the road. And then if they got cubs, they'll stand right in the middle of the road, look back, wait for the cubs to come, like expecting the car to stop, which they do 90% of the time, unless it's late at night, right? Because bears can tend, bears are nocturnal, right? But point is, is you know the difference between a deer, a moose, a bear, a coyote, whatever. When somebody is driving down a road at night and they say that something that's six, seven feet tall or taller, just ran across the road in like two strides in front of them. Well, first off, you'd have to be that tall to, to stride a road, right? That quickly. Like some of this account is when the person said that they saw the Sasquatch cross the road. Like they, they didn't even like believe what they were seeing, but they didn't slow down to check it out either. They're like, nah, I'm just going to keep going. Right. And I want to say it took them a few years to even like even talk about that. But one of the other encounters that was on Bear Notch actually happened on a scenic pull-off. Like the state of New Hampshire does a lot of scenic pull-offs and they're really nice. They're all tarred and there's guardrails, and sometimes there'll be a a plaque with a map showing you where you are. It's really cool. Well, one of the encounters on Bear Notch was somebody had stopped and it was later in the day, but it wasn't nighttime. And they stopped to just check out the, what we call the scenic vista. And they could hear monkey sounds down over the hill. And then they looked down and they said they saw something that looked like a gorilla. And it was more than one of them. It was like, like an adult and then maybe like a juvenile. Right. And then when this particular Sasquatch 
saw the people, well, I kind of screamed at them just like, okay, get out of here, leave me alone. But these people are very adamant that that's what they saw. Of course, I believe that the state of New Hampshire fishing game knows like wholeheartedly that there is like this stuff going on. And and a lot of this goes back to the story of how I even got hooked up with Evan from New Hampshire Sasquatch Research, right? He was on Instagram and he had posted an encounter. And when he does that, he always puts a map of the area, right? Shows kind of where it is. So I, I just happened to find this. It's just when you're scrolling, you come across pages you might like. And I saw that and I'm like, oh, I'm here. I got to check this out. So then, so, so I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, I know that area. So I'm reading about the encounter and what it was, was a fishing game conservation officer was driving down this highway and it was later in the day. He was headed back to the ranger station and he saw what he thought was a very tall hiker on the edge of the woods, right? And he's like, well, kind of suspicious. I'm going to slow down and check it out. So he's slowing down and checking it out. And it didn't take him too long to figure out that it wasn't a hiker. Number one, it was way too tall to be a human being. And it was furry. It wasn't wearing hiking gear. And he said he looked at it, was trying to process in his mind what he was even looking at, and just kept going. He didn't stop. He didn't do anything. So when he gets back to his command post or whatever, he's talking to one of the one of the other guys there. And, and I just recently told this story too. He was talking to one of the guys there and telling him what he saw. And I think he would, probably was debating on the fact that he was going to do that. But being a conservation officer probably felt like he was obligated to talk about it. And he's telling this gentleman what he saw. And the guy's like, yeah, you didn't see anything. He goes, oh, no, I saw. He goes, no, listen to me. You didn't see anything. And I recommend you don't talk about it. So that leads me to believe. Now, it took, it took several years after that encounter to when he hit retirement time. And the... The rumor is, is that he was threatened with losing his retirement if he spoke out about it. And, and the reason why I got to say that that's probably true, when Evan actually got him to talk about it, this guy was like, yeah, I don't care if you posted information of this and that, don't use my name or whatever. Because at this point, he's retired and he's collecting his pension, right? Which the state of New Hampshire pension, pretty pretty good. You, you take that along with your SSI, you're going to be living pretty good. And so I was talking to Evan about it, and I said, well, do you think you could get him to come on the show? We could keep him anonymous, and obviously it's audio only. There's no video or anything like that. Well, I guess that guy got pretty upset with him and said, no, don't you be talking. Don't you tell anybody who I am or anything like that. I don't want to risk losing my pension. So he, even after all those years, I'm talking could be up to five, six years later, he was so concerned with losing his pension over this. 
And I think, and I, which leads me to believe that the state of New Hampshire or a faction of the New Hampshire fishing game know that there are Sasquatch in this state. Now, on that part of the state where he saw this is not far from the main border. Again, once you get to that part of New Hampshire, the main border is very close and it is remote. All the land up there is owned by the paper companies. It's just, it's very remote. And what was interesting about this and why this even piques my interest to begin with was that I had gone on a four-wheeling trip I like to off-road, you know that. And there was a whole bunch of us, and long story short, I had an audio encounter of what I determined and deduced were juveniles, or, or younger, actually, Sasquatches in the woods playing. Well, where we were lined up within a mile or two of where this conservation officer had his encounter. Wow. Um, that kind of solidified in my mind that that area got something going on there. And I mean, how many times have we heard stories of UFO activity, orbs, the old, the old mysterious orbs in the woods thing, which I have also witnessed coinciding with some form of Sasquatch encounter. Which brings back in what you were speaking about earlier, the possibility of there being possibly portals, time warps or whatever. I mean, if you look at the 411 missing series, I mean, these people just vanish like in thin air. They leave nothing. They don't leave clothing. They don't leave blood. They don't leave anything. And then in some cases, they reappear 10 miles away from there. And there's no way that that person could have traversed that terrain in that period of time. Yeah. So well, there's a the question, like, how did you get from point A to point B? Right. Well, and, and there is the sort of through line between both of these subjects, which may be that some people are being abducted maybe lightly by these Sasquatch for some purpose. One of the more, I think this is one of the earlier encounters with a Sasquatch that got reported, but a gentleman in Canada up on the Canadian shield up there somewhere was sleeping in a sleeping bag, camping under the stars and wakes up with in the sort of fetal position with the realization that his sleeping bag is now being hunched, hoisted over something's shoulder and he's being carried somewhere in his sleeping bag. And then he gets tumbled out of his sleeping bag and presented to this group of Sasquatch, which according to this man took care of him, you know, and, and returned him to where they found him at some point in the future. And you got to wonder, like, this is an early story. So outside of maybe Native American oral stories about these creatures, this gentleman didn't have a lot to go on as far as being a hoaxer and making stuff up. I really wouldn't even consider that based on all the details. It just seems like something that you wouldn't go through the trouble of imagining if, if that was your only intention was to just make up an interesting story. I mean... It just, it seems like one of these encounters that shows that 
maybe these beings wanted him to know, hey, we're going to take care of you and put you back where you were. Go tell this to all the other humans that we censor a problem for us, right? Like these creatures, I think they're conscious. They may have known who this conservation officer was and purposefully trailed him to send some sort of message, right? I mean, I, I think we underestimate these creatures when we think of them as just like a, a lost great ape, the same way the gorillas once were. I think there's way more to it. Right. Yeah, 100%. I think there's way more to it. I think they're a lot smarter than people think they are. Okay, let's face it. There's a number of people that are like, think it's totally bunk, right? I, for one, just feel as though you're not going to get that many people to come up with these fantastical stories about an encounter because a lot of people that have encounters won't even talk about it. Because they don't want to be ridiculed. They don't want people to think they're crazy. You know what I mean? They don't want to say, oh, yeah, he's the Bigfoot guy. And I'll give you an example. A couple of towns over from here, out in what we call floodplain, because it's a big river that goes down through there, and it's actually, it's federal floodplain. There was a, a guy, and I actually am friends with his sons. He's long gone now. But he was out hunting, and he swears to God he saw a Bigfoot. But he goes and he tells everybody. And then the news picks it up. And then it gets in the paper. And then it gets on the news on television. Now everybody and their brother is just calling this guy every mean thing you could possibly think of in the book. Mm. And in hindsight, like he told his kids, I wish I never would have said a word. He said, I just really didn't think that would be the reaction. Yeah. It's this day, that area, the locals call that down in Bigfoot country, down, down where the Bigfoot are, down in the floodplain. Of course, it's remote down there. Right. It's just old dirt roads and four-wheeler roads and logging roads and stuff like that. Now, I've been down in there, and I got to tell you, it's kind of it's got a spooky vibe to it Eerie. when you're down there, because I've gone down there multiple times. No, not walking around, just kind of cruising around in my old four-wheel drive truck back in the day, just checking it out, right? And even if you stop to take a, take a break to get rid of some of your water, it would be like really eerie, not going to lie, just kind of bizarre feeling when you're there, like a sense that something just isn't right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, getting back to your story about this gentleman that was abducted out of a sleeping bag, like, like that is way before social media, way before news agencies, way before any of that. This guy probably didn't even know what a Bigfoot was. So what would give him the motive to make a story up like that? See, that's what leads me to believe that it's a legit story. Right. That is not the only abduction story that's on the books from like the 1800s, from it, not only Native American lore, but like just early American or Canadian lore. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story. Now, I think this might have been Northern United States out in the West, like Montana, Dakotas or something like that. Or if it was in Canada, like, because then you have Alberta and Saskatchewan and British Columbia and all that stuff over there where the Sasquatch had kidnapped a woman 
brought her back to their cave or whatever, ended up mating with her, and she gave birth to a human Sasquatch hybrid baby. And then a few years later, well, probably four or five when the child was a little older, she left, went, found her way back to where she was from with this baby. And this baby, I want to say it was a little boy. And this little boy grew up in this town. And, and, I, and I kind of forget where the story goes from there. But he ended up being like a very well-known, respected member of the community. But that story is out there. Like, I wish I would have had a little bit more time to look into that because it's a, a really crazy story. Is she a Native American woman? I think she was, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah but living in like a community, not, not like with a tribe or anything like that. Yeah. Wow. So, and then, and then the stories in lore where Native Americans, along with fur trappers, were being disturbed by Sasquatch, like stealing their stuff, wrecking their camps, wreaking havoc on them. They're there to trap and make money. Well, the Sasquatch was kind of deterring them from doing that. So they set up an ambush and a trap and they caught a Sasquatch. And they were able to manhandle it enough to get it back to camp. And they held him captive for a long time. Or so the story goes, the Sasquatch ended up escaping. But this was all documented. Now, you're talking late 1700s or mid, mid to late 1700s, this story comes from. I mean, they don't have any motive to make that up. Because legends of Sasquatch in the Native American community go all the way back as far as they were oral histories were converted onto paper. Yeah, wow, it's fascinating. You Brent, you brought that up because you know, I, in our notes, you planned on mentioning bloodlines and transhumanism, and I think as far as genetics go. Sasquatch may be our closest relative on the planet and maybe even closer to what we think of as a human than what we are, because this is a being that, from what we observe, lives in harmony with its environment. We, as human beings, we've domesticated ourselves, just like the way a wild boar can sort of have children that become pigs and then if they're they're left out of a farm situation in the wild they'll become boar again they'll start growing those big teeth and their hair will come back so just like pig we humans have kind of maybe become like a domesticated version of of what a sasquatch is or what we could be if if we weren't living in this agrarian type way okay so when you talk about that if you have you ever seen a boar in the wild? So so we have wild boar in northern New Hampshire, certain parts of northern New Hampshire. At least we did back when I was a kid, when I was just in my early hunting days, 15, 16 years old. They're dangerous too, huh? They're big time dangerous. 
And if you look at the body shape of a wild boar, now just take some of the boars that they hunt down in Texas and they have to hunt them because they overpopulate and they just destroy everything, right? Right. But if you see the body structure, they're really humped up on the shoulder. They're very super muscular. Now, even pigs are muscular, right? They're 90% muscle. But when you see how their body is shaped and formed and then the tusks, right? And then you see a domestic domesticated pig, like say a Yorkshire or something like that, which is your pink pigs. That pig has developed and evolved differently, just like how dogs do. Because pigs, believe it or not, swine is not that far off from an actual dog, right? They're as smart. They have the same mannerisms. They're just as smart as dogs are. They can take commands. They can do everything like that. And which is kind of funky when you find that out. And then you think to yourself, well, you know what? Bacon is good. Ham is good. Pulled pork is good, right? <laughs> Ribs are good. But you wouldn't think that way about your dog, right? But anyways, getting back to it. If, if that branched off and say, and this is how some of the boar, the boar population came back was early pigs, settlers, pigs escaping because pigs are escape artists and they would escape, go back out into the wild. Obviously they don't have any problem fending for themselves like whatsoever, right? And then after generation after generation, then they start evolving back to their roots because now they're in the wild. So, so their elevate, their, ele, ev, excuse me, evolution is based on their environment. So could you be talking about the same thing with humans and Sasquatch? Here's my thought on it. Now we're going to start getting out there just a little bit. I think Sasquatch is like maybe initially we're always here. I don't believe humans were built to be on this planet. I have always thought that humans were seated on this planet. Maybe in the form that we are in now, we are some form of hybrid. Now, when they talk about aliens, my thought is, okay, you're looking at the aliens. We are the aliens. Because we're not like, we're not indigenous to this planet, in my theory. Take, for instance, the fact that other than some facial hair and hair in other places on humans, right? We have no hair. We have no fur. We have nothing to keep us warm to live in the environment that we live in, especially in the northern states, in the northern hemisphere, right? Our bodies are not in tune to, to work with the gravity, right? Our eyesight is not in tuned to see the things that we need because if we are predators and our eyes are in front of our head and that's the sign of a predator like human beings are an apex predator right why can't we see at night when a bear can see at night a cat can see at night 90 percent of all the animals are nocturnal like they're alive at night they see at night humans aren't, des aren't designed to do that we're designed to be in sunlight. And as a matter of fact, we require sunlight for light. We require vitamin D, which is provided to us by sunlight. 
where these animals, they just camp out in the woods, out in the dark and try to stay out of everybody's view. And then they come out at night, right? A human cannot survive out in the woods in the winter. Like, like take clothes out of this, out of the equation. Cause clothes is something that humans developed, started out by wearing furs, so on and so forth down the line to today, wearing North Face, Tommy Hilfiger, Levi Strauss, Champion, whatever. But in reality, we're designed to be naked. Well, there's no way that a human can survive in the Northern Hemisphere or the upper latitudes naked. Just, it's just not going to happen. But you take a bear, a Sasquatch, a deer, a coyote fox, whatever, just any, any animal, birds, right? They survive all winter. They're just fine. Yeah, it's probably cold as a bench for them, but they're not going to freeze to death because their bodies are designed because their bodies are indigenous to this planet where I don't believe humans' bodies are indigenous to this planet. And I think humans may have evolved partly from some type of hominid that was on this planet at one time and hybridized by extraterrestrials to be in the form that Homo sapiens sapien is now. Right. Well, and to be including another portion of what you prepared me with, reincarnation. I mean, I think you and I would both agree that we have multiple lives our soul lives beyond the this body, this vessel that we're in. And in some ways, the beings on the planet operate in this symbiosis with one another and offer themselves up as sacrifice to each other's nourishment in this same sort of karmic way. But humans, it seems like we have a special role here, almost like the religions have taught us. And we humans are, I, I think, aside from maybe... Elephants? I think they, they've determined elephants have some sort of spiritual belief based on their the way they treat recently deceased members of their families. But for the most part, I mean, as far as we can interpret, humans are the only creatures on the planet with this religious kind of ideation that really motivates life, right? All, the, all other beings are motivated by the primal needs, whereas humans will starve themselves literally to to be closer with God. No other creature on the planet does anything like that. So to your point, yeah. And I wonder in this cosmic way if that explains why we're so different than the other beings on this planet, because we come here it's like organizers, mind infused, this other element infused into the organic mind. And we kind of sort things out while sorting ourselves out and growing through these many lifetimes through many different realms. Yeah, you are absolutely correct that humans are the only one that even have that inclination to a higher being, right? right. Or answering to a higher being. Right. Now, if you start talking about DNA and in bloodlines and things like that, I'm not sure if animals have different blood types. Like, that's a very good question. That's something I probably should look into. However, humans have multiple blood types. 
And not only that, some of us humans have blood types that they're not quite sure where that blood type originated from, right? So, so again, we're getting into the RH negative factor where the RH stands for the basically the rhesus monkey gene where those types of humans possibly were hybridized with some form of other primate at one time, but Rh-negative people were not because we don't possess the rhesus monkey gene. You follow what I'm saying? So now the question is, even as humans, even though we all look the same, Rh-negative people are different. Yeah. It does say here, I just did some quick Googling and uh, duck, duck going, and we've duck, ducked our way to finding out that canines have over 13 different blood types. Felines do, horses do. Seems like only, aside from domesticated animals, they're only really studying or describing the blood types of humans, apes, monkeys, and the rest are just domesticated animals, canines, felines, horses, bovines. I wonder if that has something to do with it, the, the breeding, crossbreeding, all the different things that go on when humans kind of get in the genetic engineering field. People think genetic engineering requires like specialized devices and laboratories. It's as simple as what a farmer does when it takes one sheep and says that sheep will make a good sheep if I breed it with that sheep. And then we're going to put those two sheep together. Nature does the rest. That's genetic engineering to some extent. So I wonder if wild animals don't have that same differentiation or diversity because they haven't been through that process of, of unnatural selection. Okay, so let's do this. All white-tailed deer look the same. Some of what they call piebalds, and it, and it, and it kind of looks like uh, the same thing as a paint horse or what they call a pinto, which was one of the favorites of uh, Native Americans was the pinto horse, what we call the paints, where they're not colored like uh, Palomino was colored a certain way. Actually, Palomino's, which happens to me, be my favorite horse, is because I'm a little bit of a horse person. They come in different versions. They could be tan with black tail and mane. They could be tan with blonde tail and mane. Do you know what I mean? Something like that. And then you have the Appaloosa. That's all one color, except their hindquarters are spotted. And there's different types of Appaloosas. And then you've got Arabian horses. And then you have the pink horse, which is similar to a piebald white tail, which is not spotted in the sense that Bambi is spotted or all newborn uns are spotted, right? The baby deer. But a, but a piebald deer is colored like a, like a pinto horse, right? So, but that aside, that is like a, a genetic anom anomaly, just like there is such a thing as albino deer, right? Like white deer with red eyes, like, like they have those two. They're not all that rare, to be honest. But point is, all white-tailed deer look the same. All moose look the same. Like for thousands of years, that has not changed. Right have not evolved into a different looking creature, right? Mm. A crow and a raven, very similar. One's bigger than the other. Consequently, one of the smartest birds there ever was, right? 
Then you have owls all pretty much look the same, aside from the fact that there's different types of owls. But when you look at other animals, like a black bear looks like a black bear. A brown bear looks like a brown bear. A grizzly is its own bear. And then you've got the offshoots of that grizzly, which are bears that are indigenous to only certain islands, like a Kodiak bear which is a grizzly bear, but it's a Kodiak bear. It's a little different because they're only raised on Kodiak Island. They don't get off the island, right? Hold on, Mark. Okay. Well, and these seem to be mostly genetic environmental differentiations too. I mean, like islands have different environments naturally, right? So if you're isolated to one specific area, you're going to adjust to the biodiversity of that specific region. But I see what you're saying. When you think about most wild animals, if you were to take a hundred of them and put them in a in a, the same room, you, you wouldn't see that much differentiation. I'm sure there are extenuating examples or maybe exceptions rather with certain animals like birds, the birds of paradise down there in Southeast Asia, they, they have incredible variety and I think in the same species with different colors and plumage but you do make a great point that for the most part wild animals seem to be all pretty similar I mean their their differences are probably noticeable only to them whereas our domesticated animals are pretty obvious I mean the difference between a German shepherd and a chihuahua are incredible Okay, so where I was getting was there's over 350 types and breeds of dogs that all look different. Right. Right? And a dog is a domesticated animal, allegedly evolved from a wolf. Mm. Right? Mm. Now, we know there's some types of dogs that that's true. The Husky, the Malamute, the Malinois, the German Shepherd. These are all wolf-looking dogs. But then you got my favorite. Your terriers, your pet bulls, and then you have multiple breeds of that. Like pit bull is just like a generic name for a particular breed of dog that looks a particular way, right? But you have American Staffordshire Terriers, which is what my dogs are. But they're purebred dogs. They're blue nose. They're a purebred dog. They're actually recognized by the AKC now as a pure breed type of breed of dog and they're actually allowed them at the kennel club dog shows now but then you have the boston terrier which is a bully breed and then you have a boxer which is a bully breed and then you have all these other types of dogs that that are all similar but different again domesticated animals but all wolves look the same apart from their different coloring right same thing with foxes same thing with Well, coyotes are a little different because we have different coyotes in the Northeast. We have the Northeast coyote, which is actually a coyote-wolf hybrid, right? They're bigger. Like our coyotes we have here are not that far off from a wolf, Mm. far as size goes, right? Right. But anyways, but humans, with the exception of each person having one or two doppelgangers in the world, we all look different. We're all genetically kind of the same, but not really. And then again, let's bring the RH negative in. So then you have 
these types of humans that are genetically different from other humans. Right. And it's just something like, I don't think they like to talk about that. Mm. Like if you want to dive deep into the whole RH negative blood type deal, it's like, you have to go to alternative sources to get that information. Like you can't really get information other than sterilized information from say the Mayo Clinic online or, or John Hopkins or whatever, anything like that. Like they basically just want to say, yeah, your blood just doesn't possess this rhesus, whatever it is, gene. Okay. That might sound real simple on the front, on the front side, but on the back side is answer the question. If we're different and we don't possess this gene, why do these people have this gene and we don't have this gene? Then comes the question of evolution, right? Is it evolution or is it a grand design? where some of us are manipulated a little bit differently. Because my theory is, again, going back to what I said earlier, humans are not indigenous to this planet. These stories that we hear, these biblical tales, could be nothing more than somebody's explanation of the gods, aka extraterrestrials, came to this planet there was some type of humanoid here, could have been Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, whatever. It could be something that even predates that. And we see this come down. Now, all of a sudden, we have these angels coming down, mating with the domestic humans that are here, and coming up with these hybrid beings which evolved into what is homo sapiens sapiens today. Like they all say, okay, so we evolved from monkeys or we evolved from this, from Lucy from Africa, which I don't believe that theory at all. I mean, probably some people did, but I don't think all of us did. So genetically, you got this group of people. If you look at all the royal bloodlines, most of all your royal bloodlines are all RH negative people. And this is why sometimes they don't like to marry outside of their families. I know we might be getting a little off topic here, but we're still, we're talking about bloodlines and genetic engineering. So these royal families do their own form of genetic engineering by not breeding outside of their blood type. And this is why you take a lot of elite families there is always at least at least one and sometimes multiple cases of them having children that are born that ain't quite right. A nice way to say it. Mm. You know, the royal family of England, a couple of cases there where where possibly one of their offspring was was not right in the sense that he was a homicidal maniac. And the theory is that that's actually who Jack the Ripper was. So just to give you an example. And then you have one of the Kennedys, which is an American elite royal family, had the one daughter that had some issues, right? So, I mean, they don't like to marry outside of their bloodline because they don't want to cloud that bloodline. And I feel as though if you want to bring it to modern times, this is why the royal family was so upset that Prince Harry married 
Meghan Markle. Right? Just a simple theory there. That, okay, now you're kind of marrying right. out of out of the ginger bloodline here. <laughs> yeah. Which is, the ginger bloodline is heavy-duty RH negative. So I, I know that because our family is full of gingers and we're, most of us are RH negative. Well, and is that is that a, something that prerequisites having red hair? Because I have red hair in my beard. And uh, one, one, one person that I remember in my family having red hair, they've since passed their older relative. But yeah, there's, there's some red in my beard. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm RH negative, does it? No, it doesn't. But being, being a redhead or blonde with blue eyes or green or hazel eyes is an RH negative trait. Well, I do have green slash hazel eyes. Do you know what your blood type is? No. Now, you would be amazed at how many people answer that question with no. Well, it, it, it is something that I will admit, and I don't like admitting this kind of stuff on the podcast because it could be used against me, so I'll probably edit this out. But I am squeamish about blood, particularly, I mean, needles, obviously, but not just for the reasons that we all went through in the past four years. But yeah, I... I just never liked the idea. I remember in high school, they they almost required everybody to to like give blood, and I I like protested. I was like, I don't have to give blood. I, it's my body, my choice to use that phrase. I I think I was kind of alone. Everybody else seemed to be like, yeah, why not? It's for a good cause, and something about it just didn't feel right to me. And maybe that's a whole nother conversation about the red cross and where that blood goes and why they're taking high school kids blood and kind of i don't remember what the incentive was but one teacher was very forceful about it and almost looked at me like i was some there was something wrong with me for protesting it and i'm like well it's my body i if i don't want to take blood out of it i think i have the right to say <laughs> no and they they didn't stop me from not doing it so especially when you find out that the red cross is controlled by the Rothschild family. Doesn't doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> okay, so not only do you have the Red Cross, but you have the Red Shield. Yeah. Which is in Europe. Rothschild yeah. means Red Shield, yeah. There you go. Wow. Huh. Now, I do want to get back to this because I feel like this is a topic, to your point that you made earlier, that doesn't get discussed a lot. They don't want people really having a good understanding of this and and maybe that suspicious sort of paranoia that i have about getting my blood type tested or whatever however you would find that out maybe that's for a certain reason maybe they they've instilled that in people but what we're talking about is the abo blood group system and it was carl landsteiner and alexander wiener who did the work that won them, I think, a few awards in science for discovering the A, B, and O blood types, which I think at the time they thought there were maybe only a couple blood types, but he found out that there are, in fact, at least a dozen known blood types, right? Because for each blood type, you also have the, it could be like a negative or what positive, positive right? So Yeah, so you have your straight blood types, now, I'm not a scholar on blood types, but I do know this. 
you have your straight blood types, your A, B, O, A, B is another blood type, mm -hmm. right? And for each one of those, you either, ha you can have a negative and a positive. So you could have a straight blood type, a positive blood type, or a negative blood type. Right. So, and then there's lots of different variations. There actually might be more than 12 blood types. But I know that O negative, which is what I am, is I want to say it's between 7 and 15% of the world population has that blood type. So it's not like it's super, super rare. It's not the rarest. There's other blood types that are rarer. But, but the thing that is unique about the O negative is that the O negative is universal donor, which means I can give blood right. to every human being. Well, and people have heard that before, but what that means is, because I didn't know this until now, I've heard that before and I'm just like, oh, okay, yeah, you can give blood. But what that is, is you have either antibody B or antibody A in your blood system, or you have neither, or you have both. And that's why people with O can donate to anybody because they have both and it's not going to upset somebody, right? Like a, a A type can't give to a B type. That makes sense to people. I didn't understand this. There's a graph here that makes sense now, but it does kind of, in a, in one sense, it fits into this sort of divine sacred geometry that we see in biology because just like there are four parts of our DNA, there are four blood cells, right? Or four types of blood. And then you multiply that by three, you get 12. What is 12? I mean, 12 is everything around us. You could see 12, this number, I mean, from the from the, the, the various cycles to all these different interpretations, it's, it's not a coincidence that we have 12 months in the year. 12 is this kind of a divine number in many ways. So, yeah, I, I think that's kind of interesting. It does say that there are 44 different blood type classification systems. I don't know what that means. I don't think that means there's 44 blood types. I think that just means there's different ways to classify them. So, yeah. yeah, what's unique about O negative is even though we can give blood to every human, we can only take O negative blood. Interesting. Now, yeah, you just had a point there and there was something I wanted to say and I, it just is divine, the sacred mathematics of it all and oh, how okay. the four so strands talk, of the DNA. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk about 12, what's cool about 12 is divisible by six and three. And those are other unique numbers in the world right of yeah well and and that's that's exactly what i think this all comes back to is that there is a sort of rhyme and rhythm to everything and because the elites have gotten ahead of the rest of us in education and some other things and our understanding of the world around us they've they've been able to kind of direct the course of society for the past so many hundreds of years to this position where now we're all living under this false assumption that my body, your body is not complete the way it is. And that without a doctor or some other medical authority, you can't expect to live a long, healthy life. And I think in the absence of all these medical industries, we would probably live healthier organically and naturally. I mean, there'd have to be the absence of the pesticide companies and all the other polluters, but that's kind of where I'm, I'm 
throwing the ball to you in your court uh, to serve it back. I mean, I think part of where they're going with this is eugenics and, and eventually using this knowledge of our blood types and our DNA against us to put us in this kind of transhumanist mode. It doesn't seem to have worked to the way they thought it would. I mean, the same way you domesticate animals, you select certain to breed with others. It feels like there's also this error correcting, this self-correcting nature that's inherent to all biology. And because these elite have tried to manipulate their genetics to pull out the best outcomes, it's almost worked against them because that's just not how it's supposed to work. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think technology might help them leap that, that gap, that, that self-correcting error gap? So if you think back, let's go back to biblical times. There's stories in the Bible where people were literally hundreds, if not a thousand years old. Noah was about 400 years old. And Noah's father was close to a thousand years old. Now, of course, these are biblical stories, so we have no way of vetting them. But when you talk about eugenics in the sense of bioengineering human beings, like, let's just bring biological warfare into it, which is something that we just experienced over the last three years. Now, there's a theory that they want a lot of big DNA databases of everybody so they know who is who. Not only that, because you can be identified by your unique DNA, but they're also DNA-specific bioweapons that they can unleash to kill a certain genetic group of people. And this is a theory that this is what they were doing in China, trying to develop these weapons. And it's also a theory, this is what they were doing in the bio labs in Ukraine, was designing DNA-based bio weapons. And this is one of the theories that this is why the Russians wanted to eliminate that. Now, I don't want to get into any conspiracy theories about this whole Ukraine war, but I think a lot of it is just made up personally. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not saying they're not fighting over there. I'm just saying the reasons, like the real reasons why this is going on. Right? And there's multiple conspiracy theories that surround that. However, when this, when this war first kind of kicked off, there was a lot of talk in a conspiracy world that there were a lot of bioweapons labs there. And of course, everybody was saying that was crazy or not. She shouldn't be talking like that. And then about a month later, somebody from the U.S. government during a speech or some form of hearing admitted that there were U.S.-backed bioweapons labs in Ukraine. And then everybody's asking, okay, well, then why did the Russians know where they were? And the simple answer to that is that these bioweapons labs were originally Russian bioweapons labs. And when Ukraine left the Soviet Union, well, they just, the Allies just took these facilities over. Like, they didn't relocate them. So, when you want to get back to the DNA, right, they can design a weapon that, say, can kill Caucasians. 
or that can kill African-Americans or black people across the world. Right. Some people have suggested that that's what sickle cell anemia was and and to the gay population AIDS, right? I mean, we've seen specifically engineered towards certain groups of people bioweapons. Wow. Yeah. I mean, even the- I 100% believe that AIDS was made in a lab. And that brings Fauci back into it too. And then the whole drug that he came up with was AZT, which is the remdesivir of its day, which they were giving AIDS patients, which essentially was finishing them off. Right. You know what I mean? Same thing with remdesivir was finishing off the COVID patients, right? Yeah. And why was it that old blood types weren't susceptible to COVID? Where A blood types were more susceptible to COVID? Well, there's more A-type people in the world than there is O-type people in the world. Mm. True. And then there was a theory that there was DNA weapons being developed in the United States that killed just Asian people or Chinese people to be specific. So you're talking about like DNA based weapons to kill certain groups of people. Right. Right. And I don't think it's any different now than it was possibly 500 years ago. Well, and, and to why, your, are you, why is our life expectancy only like 70 something years old now? Right. And, and basically if you live past 79, well, you're, you're good. You know, you're good. You did good. So it's all free time after that. Yeah. But you're designed to die at a certain age. Could be for financial reasons for all we know, because if you're on SSI, Social Security, and you die, well, they don't have to pay you back the money they owe you. I mean, think at it, think of it in those terms. Right. But But here's a theory that I had, and this is based on some research that I saw that was done like 20 years ago, right? When they were talking about ethnic diversity, right? So you have your Spanish type people and then you have your Asian type people and then you have your Caucasian people and then you have your Negro people, right? And this is what they called them back then. I'm not saying that to sound racist or whatever. And then you have your Slavic people, right? They said at a, at at some certain year in the future, there won't be all these different races of people because they will be so intertwined that we're all going to be genetically the same. So if you think of it in those terms, and now you see all these people, ethnic people from all over third world nations, migrating to first world nations is this part of an elitist plan to bring that to fruition to and i don't mean in the next five or ten years but i'm saying in the next 20 30 50 years make us all genetically the same right well and to the people and, well well so then mark all they need is one bioweapon take care of as many people as they want yeah. I know well, it's a far out theory, but no, and I and to some argument I think it benefits 
this elite to have multiple groups of people to turn against each other. And it's almost to their benefit that it's like the whole Tower of Babel thing. And to that point, I wonder if that whole idea for the people who are like, well, it's inevitable as society advances, we'll all just sort of lose these ethnic boundaries because we'll all be interracially in interracial relationships. And I, I would wonder if that would be maybe the opposite where, you know, as environments change, people continue to change and new ethnicities are created in, in the same way that the ethnicities that we have now were once created by the decision of one group of people to say, hey, we're going to go move to the other side of the river. And then they stayed there for a thousand years. And even though they're related to maybe these people who are relatively close geographically, very different culturally, even genetically expressing differences. So I mean, if we see that kind of change over the time period of recorded history, how could we assume that it would then go the other way to homogenize, right? I, that would have to be, I think, artificially activated or, or manipulated to be the case, right? And that's probably what the elites are, are looking to do because, hey, it's in one sense, it's easier to control people when there's many different groups to divide and conquer. But once you've conquered them all, if you've mastered the art of the cult, you can keep everyone in your cult. And, and the same way they have in India with a caste system, make people say to themselves, well, I was born to be poor, so that's all I'll ever be. And oh, I was born to be rich, so screw everyone else below me. Not that I don't know Indian culture well enough to say that's the case with their caste system, but that is something that we're seeing here in America. A sort of widening gap between the upper and lower class and a very yeah, middle class. Yeah, and you're talking like the bourgeoisie, right? What the Russians called the bourgeoisie, which was the, the middle class, right? And then you had the upper, then you had the middle, then you had the lower, then you had the below the lower, right? So in the United States, everybody says, well, we're all supposed to be equal. We can, clearly, it's not the case, right? But my my thought on the whole deal is why would the elites want to kill off all of the non-elites because if the if the elite didn't have the, the what they consider the lower class of people to do all the work how are they going to survive right it's like a it parasite would a, it would be a suicide pact on their part Right. It's like a parasite. It doesn't want to kill its host. It wants to suck it dry and and then move on to another one. And a parasite can't survive unless there's hosts plenty to suck off of. And I think this is why they like to do the divide and conquer. Mm. They like to have, just like I still say that this there's this whole push now to bring back racial warfare in the United States. I mean, we see it, we see it on social media. And I'm not just talking whites versus blacks. I'm talking black, whites versus Asians, blacks versus Asians, whites versus Spanish or whatever. You know what I mean? Because the elite just sit back and watch us all fight each other. But what's the one thing all in common is that it doesn't matter if you're white, if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're Spanish, you're all making money and you're paying taxes. And who do the taxes go to support? The elite. Follow what I'm saying? So it's a no-lose situation for them. Right. 
But if they get us genetically all the same, say 50 or 100 years down the road, right, there might be something, some form of manipulative technology that they have that can be sent on to us in the way of frequency or whatever. You've heard of all the, the conspiracy theories based around 5G. Is that, oh, that everybody that took the you-know-what, that we can control them with 5G and basically turn them into worker bees, turn them into zombies, right? So, but that may not only, that may not affect all the population, might affect a certain degree of their population. But if you give them enough time and enough technology and enough genetic, genetic altering, and everybody has the same genetics, well, they just need one tool to control the masses. They're not going to get rid of people. They need people to do the work. That's just like any monarchy. You have the monarchy, then you have the peasants, right? You have the monarchy, which is at the top, and then you have, what is the system that comes out there? Like like the earls or the barons or whatever, upper-class people. Oh, yeah. Right? That are very very well-to-do. Okay, hierarchy. That's exactly what I was looking for. And then you have the monarch at the top, which is the king, the queen, the princess, princesses, and all that. And then you have the 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 next step down of hierarchy. You have the next type of people, right. the very well-to-do people, who them themselves have their servants, and then them servants have people that serve them, and right down the line right. to the peasants. Right. Who are growing all the food, taking care of the animals, slaughtering the animals, bringing food to market, and paying their taxes. So they don't want to get rid of all of these people because without that, their system goes away and they can't have that. So if you want to think about DNA genetic modification and manipulation, you have to take those things into consideration. I know it sounds like a really simple concept, but when you think about it, it is really complex. Well, absolutely. How this whole system works. I think that's why the fear with AI and all this other stuff is, oh, we're going to get replaced. But I know you're in the automobile business and and I don't know how fast self-driving cars can even come close to replacing the cars that navigate the complicated road systems that we have in the United States. I mean... Sure, we can train a computer to follow a maze and all this stuff, but you know, if we're gonna have automated vehicles self-driving on the road, you're not gonna have passive. You're not gonna have manual drivers. You can't. It would be too. I feel like. I mean, personally, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a luddite, but I feel like that would be a tremendous insurance bill for these companies that would be sending these huge tons of weight driving around with a computer operating it. I mean, who, who knows what kind of errors could occur with a computer operating a huge vehicle like that, right? And with the road systems, you got roads that go over cliffs. You got roads that are very narrow going through chaotic cities. I mean, how are they going to replace that infrastructure. I just don't see it happening. I think what they're trying to do is incentivize people to go to places like LA and New York City where they could seemingly operate some sort of driverless system. And then with everybody in places like that, they they don't have as much worry about these crazy truckers, <laughs> computer truckers flying down the road. Okay. Well, let me tell you, because you, you almost got there. Hit me. (laughs) In certain cities, 
even older cities like New York City, as you set up on a grid system, it's square block after square block after square block, right? So those are the types of cities where autonomous vehicles would work perfectly fine. Mm. Because, because the infrastructure is basically already there. Like if you remember like back in early 1900s when all the cities had electric trolleys, right? All you needed was an operator to turn the juice on and turn the juice off. And that's all the tro- juice on, trolley goes, juice off, trolley stops, right? But it was set up on railroad tracks that were embedded into the road. So if you take that technology and you bring it forward to embedding sensors in the road, this is what the, this is how their first attempt for autonomous cars came to be, was them actually embedding sensors in the actual road. Now, this was before satellite technology, right? So, so well, I should say not before satellite technology, but before the type of satellite technology we have now. Right. So they embedded these sensors in the road. And of course, the vehicle itself had sensors that read those sensors. And that's what kept it on the road, right? But that's a tough system because not all the cars are on the same system. The only way an autonomous system or even a semi-autonomous system is going to work is all the old cars have to go away. All the what we call dumb cars have to go away. Cars without major electronics, without that type of sensor and computer systems, right? Every car on the road is going to have to communicate with each other through a satellite system. So your car... Whatever your car is doing, how fast you're going, all that information is going to get uploaded in real time to a satellite. And that information is going to be downloaded into the car in front of you. So that car in front of you knows exactly where you are. Your car knows where exactly where that car is. Now multiply that by however many millions of cars are on the highway. Now they can do that on interstate highways and they can do that in cities with grid systems. Now, I don't know how they would ever be able to pull that off in the city of Austin because even a person with excellent driving skills could have a hard time driving in Boston. Well, yeah, I've, I've been... It's messed up there. It's messed up there. Yeah, at first I thought you said Austin, but now I realize you say Boston. And I've been to Boston and wow, is it a nightmare. And that's because it's a colonial town that, you know, has gone through many different transitions with its infrastructure. And I'm from a part of the world where, like you, the towns we live in are multiple centuries old. So there are roads that are curvy and weird and make no sense and dead ends and all this stuff that people in, like when I went to Denver, it was like being on a computer trip. Like, but even New York City, like the Bronx and Brooklyn, it's chaos in a lot of places. It's not as grid-like as you'd expect, but like Denver, well, Denver's well, a straight-up grid. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you mean. But, you know, especially out west where they have these like open template cities, I mean, definitely feels like we're going to reach a, a point where, yeah, there's going to be like no dumb car zones where it's only autonomous vehicles and... Maybe it'll be only on like the frontiers where there's like industry going on, where these gasoline vehicles will still be in use. I mean, do you think that that's a, a reality I might see in my lifetime? You think? I think it's a very strong reality because we see the push for what they call in 15 minute cities. Yeah. 
was uh, basically 15 minute, really fancy resort type gulags. Yeah. And, and once you're in this city, they're going to be designed so that you don't even have a need for a vehicle. And if you need to get from point A to the other side of the city at point B, well, then you just call in, you go on an app on your phone and you call in an autonomous taxi. And that taxi shows up at your door yard and you get in and it takes you to your destination. That is the extent of your use of any type of what we would deem to be a motor vehicle, right? Now, I wholeheartedly believe that this is the angle. They're already trying to come up with ways and laws to eliminate private motor vehicle ownership. They wanted to go to a subscription service, just like your Netflix, just like your Apple Music, any of that, right? Where if you qualify to have a motor vehicle, because you you have so many points in your social credit score, you are going to be very limited to where you drive that vehicle, where that vehicle is even allowed. Now, there's cities in Europe that by 2030 are not even going to allow internal combustion engines like either in the whole country or in certain or certain cities. They're going to be no-go zones for motor vehicles, right? But if they put you in a 15-minute city, I mean, any logical person that's not into driving. See, I'm a driver. I enjoy driving. I'm a car guy. I've, I've had my foot right in the throttle since I was five years old. I enjoy it. It's relaxing for me to drive. If I'm really stressed out and I need to have a cool off period, I get in my car, I go for a drive. Same thing for people in motorcycles, same idea, right? But it's going to get to the point where you're not even going to be able to do that. Like, you're not going to be able to say, hey, honey, let's take a Sunday drive. Like, that's going to be in the past. Because they're going to say, okay, no, you have to do, you have to have either this autonomous car or the semi-autonomous car. And why do you need to go for a drive? You're living in a city, you're 15 minutes from everything. You can walk there. Or you could take a bicycle or one of those little e-bikes or a Segway or something like that. You follow what I'm saying? Like they're going to convince people that there's no reason for you to own a car. And then when you get outside of these 15-minute cities, I think it's going to devolve to the point where you're going to be so afraid to leave that 15-minute city because when you get outside the 15-minute city, now you're in Mad Maxville where everything goes. And they're going to tell you, listen, we can protect you as long as you're inside the walls. And what does that go back to? That goes back to four, five hundred, six hundred years, thousand years, when all cities were walled cities. Paris was a walled city. London was a walled city. Jerusalem was a walled city. You had to go through gates, massive doors to even get into those cities, right? And once you were in that city, well, then you were under control and under the safeguard of the people that ran the city. Now, they're just taking an old concept and modernizing it in saying, this is the new way that you're going to live. You're going to live in this 15-minute city. But if you go outside of this 15-minute city, well, we can't protect you because that's the frontier now. And this is where the people that can make anything run on anything can take 10 cars and make one. You know, these are where these people who, who don't want to join that system, 
who don't want to live that way, that want to be self-supportive, grow your own food and do all this. Why do you think that there's a war on people even having their own gardens now? Now they're trying to pass laws, the government, where you have to register the fact that you have a garden at your house. Hmm. Why, do you th- why do you think there's this big push to eliminate ammonium nitrate for fertilizer? We just talked about this story last night on Wicked Planet. 30,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate disappears out of a train car between somewheres in Wyoming and Mojave Desert. Just disappears, right? Well, ammonium nitrate, that's fertilizer. You need that to grow things. Not only that, it's very good for making bombs. That's what they use as the base product to blow up the Oklahoma City building, if you believe that story. So there's a war on farming. There's a war on homesteading. There's always been a war on peppers. Like preppers have always, oh, you're a right-wing extremist domestic terrorist if you buy 50 cans of Spam. (laughs) I mean, seriously. Right. This is all designed for you to say, you know what? I'm going to give up some of my freedoms for more security, and I'm going to be 100% secure living in one of these, quote-unquote, 15-minute cities because they're going to be no gun zones. We all see how that works out. Look at how well you know gun zone cities, New York, Chicago, you know, how these cities do. Look at the murder rates, right? Obviously that doesn't work, but they're going to convince you that if you go to this 15 minute city, it's going to be a, it's going to be utopia. You're going to be able to walk everywhere. You don't have to worry about drinking and driving. You can go to the pub and drink all you want because you're not going to drive home. Autonomous car is going to bring you home. And when you really think about it, I mean, it's pretty appealing. I mean, to some, that they can just live that, live their life that way. Oh, man, I don't have to mow my lawn. I don't have to do any of that. That's all taken care of. It's all part of my point system that they take out of my universal basic income that goes to the greater good of taking care of the HOA. I mean, I mean, I know I can go for hours talking about these types of subject of what I feel as though their idea of a utopian society is going to be down the road. Now, now we have always heard of these cults and communes that are supposed to be utopian. It ends up just being a total nightmare. Mm. I don't think it's going to be any different when people start moving into these 15-minute cities. Look at this city that they're building. I don't have the dimensions right now, but this, this modernized city that they're going to be building in Saudi Arabia, right? That's basically the same idea. And what they're already like, like that's going to be the t- test bed. They're going to build this, this long city in the desert in Saudi Arabia. And these people are going to live there no and they're line. going to say, Oh, l- look at how well they do it. Why can't you do that in the United States? Right. And people are going to say, Oh my God, it's nothing but technology. You're probably going to have 10 G by then. It's not just that they have in Japan. I heard recently about an old uh, Toyota factory or something like that. One of these car factories in Japan, this massive, huge factory gutted and converted into one of these types of cities where now it's essentially going to be like living in a mall, a big shopping mall where everything you need is just an indoor walk away and your apartment is connected. And if you need to go somewhere else, there's uber and taxis connected to it so yeah i think this is the reality we're gonna have to avoid and talking to you about this i enjoy it thoroughly ron i love you we've podcasted for 
as long as I've been a podcaster, even before this podcast existed, you and I podcasted together. So I always want to have you back on a regular basis. And I just got to say, though, it does make me feel very nervous talking about a lot of this stuff because I realize how unprepared I am as an individual. So folks listening, if you want to support me and make sure that this show stays on the air, because I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. I want to keep doing this until I'm an old man. Uh, please support us on Patreon and I'm going to start prepping. I'm going to start making the moves. Maybe I'll be up there with Ron in New Hampshire. We'll have our own little podcast community up there in the, in the free state of New Hampshire. But uh, for now, you're so stoic, Ron. You're like a statue. Uh, you haven't moved once. I think I lost you. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're just staring at me very silently, I definitely lost you. Are you still there, Ron? Can you hear me? Wow. Oh, he's back. <laughs> you moved. <laughs> no, no, you were froze up too. I don't know what happened. Oh, I was saying all these nice things. You, what, what was the compliment you left? I left you with. What was the last thing you heard me say? Something that be being stoic. Yeah, you were being very stoic. Okay, so you did hear everything I was saying. Okay, good. Great. I was just saying, folks, please support the show so I can move up to New Hampshire and be in the free state and have a, a chance against this tyranny. Because I feel like if there's any place where people will still be driving their own vehicles when all these cities start passing these laws, it'll be New Hampshire. I think they'll they'll probably be a holdout. Other states will probably follow Studa. I wonder, we don't have much time. I got to go do a live stream in about five minutes. You're more than welcome to join if you if you have the time and energy. But uh, I wonder if the, the whole car bailout, where the car companies got bailed out, I wonder if that was a byproduct of maybe some company saying, hey, we're going to move to our autonomous cars in 10 or 20 years. And if you don't, if you don't follow this plan, we're going to shut you down. And those Detroit motor companies were like, yeah, now we're good. Did you catch me? Did I say all that in vain? <laughs> no, I don't know what happened. I just, my, I, it froze up and then the zoom just cut out and then it came back on. That's really bizarre. Huh. Sometimes this time of night here, we have internet problems. I don't understand. Huh. No worries. This computer is hardwired too. It's not on Wi-Fi. No worries. I was just sort of making a rhetorical statement about maybe the car companies collapsing a decade ago, 20 years ago, had something to do with this autonomous vehicle plan. Like maybe some higher ups got around to these car companies and said, whoever follows this plan, this, it might bode well for you. And the companies that were like, no, we're good. They ended up going under, right? How many car companies went under? A lot of them centered in Detroit. I don't know the intricacies of that whole event. Maybe there was other factors involved, but I wonder if that's sort of building up to this situation that we're describing that could be yeah. in the future. There could be a possibility there might have been an element to that. I feel as though being in the car business and having extensive knowledge about cars going all the way back to the 60s, that there was a period of time that when these automotive companies all went bankrupt, it was because they were basically building really awful cars. Mm. Mm. They're just really bad cars. Yeah. 
But that was all in the beginning of, okay, the, the gas crunch. We got to, you got to have so many miles per gallon. These cars had no style. They just, they, it was go, almost going to the, like, like the Russian style or the East German style of building cars, mm. right? It gets you to point A and B, but it looks like a box. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we've gotten away from that. Now cars are actually pretty fun again. Yeah. Well, Ron, I love talking to you. I could have you back on every week, but I know folks can tune into your show for that. You got the Wicked Planet podcast coming out every week. I've been on a couple times as a guest. And of course, you can follow Ron on Instagram, all the major podcast platforms that you listen to this show, wherever you're listening. Where else can they find you, Ron? You don't have a YouTube channel yet, right? We don't have YouTube, but we are working on a studio so we can go visual. But, you know, I'm a little bit of a, not 100% perfectionist, but I want it to be right. And I've actually got some people now on board helping me to get it set up and audio people and visual people. Beautiful. So I want to take the Wicked Planet to the next level. We're real happy with the show and how it's doing. We've been doing regular episodes. We've been doing bonus episodes. We're, Kristen's been back on once in a while. Anonymous Sean's kind of MIA this time of year because his business is seasonal. And this is his season. But Buckley, my right-hand man, he's here every week. We're doing our thing. And uh, we're now on Amazon Music. We're also on audible.com and we're on iHeartRadio. Wow. Well, I got to talk to you about how you did that because I don't know if I'm even on those ones. So, yeah, well, yeah, well, we can get together sometime and we can go over that. I got an email from Amazon Music. Evidently, you've got to be invited to go on that. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. That but, anyways, here's there. We're, we're on Amazon Music now. So, which by default puts you on audible.com as well. Beautiful. But yeah, big on Spotify, big on Apple Podcasts, Google, like Mark says, any podcast platform you find my family thinks I'm crazy should be able to find a wicked planet and also on Alt Media United if you're listening from the computer. Yeah, and it, like I was just about to say, if you do have trouble finding the wicked planet, you could always go to altmediaunited.com, copy paste the RSS feed and play it wherever you'd like or just listen to it on the site. So Ron, thank you so much. Tell Buckley I said hi. Give Sean my best. Obviously, this is his busy time of the month. So who knows? Maybe, I don't know his job, but maybe he's listening to podcasts on the job. Hi, Sean, if you're listening. <laughs> so listen, Mark, before we get off the air here, because mm -hmm. uh, I know you got to go. Mm -hmm. uh, it's summertime. The New England podcasters need to do a meetup and get together and hang out for a day. I agree. So let's work on that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and Porcupine Fest is coming up next month. I just got invited up to that. So yeah, we got to get, uh, get the gang together for the first time. Maybe even invite people from the listening audience. I know the, the meetups have been really popular lately, but either way, let's do something. I'll be in touch as usual. You know where to find me, Ron. But for everybody listening, please support Ron. Go check the links in the description. Follow up with him. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back at it. Here we are. And that was our conversation with Ron from New England, and what I mean by it, we're back at it. Well, we took a little bit of a break. You may have noticed, if you're listening as this is coming out, we uh, only released one episode per week this uh, past two weeks. So we'll be back to our regular release schedule uh, this week. 
So look forward to another episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And episode 300 is on the way. So look forward to that as well. I'm going to have something interesting. We'll see. It might not be like what we've done for other uh, celebration 100th anniversary type shows. Uh, I think we're going to move away from that kind of thing and just have another guest on. Uh, But it will be a special guest and uh, maybe even a third time returning guest, if that's any hint. So anyways, enough about that, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't do this without your support. So please go over to the Patreon. You get every episode early. You also get bonus episodes, video episodes, and all of my bonus content all the stuff that i'm putting together including the order of skull and bones a podcast series that i'm working on Uh, it's very special it's going to be very interesting different from the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast Uh, seems like i've been procrastinating it well we just moved and uh, now that my studio is all set up again i should be back at a regular pace like i said and maybe even able to tackle some of this extra work to get this podcast done. But um, the more support I get on the Patreon, the less I have to do things like odd jobs and landscaping and all that kind of stuff to uh, make ends meet. So please, if you love this show uh, and you think it's a travesty that I'm not working full time on this podcast, uh, because, well, I used to, but I just, you know, can't afford to do that. You know, I just... We'll see what happens. I think it's changing. Things are turning around. The Patreon's growing every day. Rockfin's growing. The YouTube's growing. But I definitely want to have more money to invest into the show. So uh, that's why I'm working as much as I am. And also trying to save up some money for a new ride. Trying to save up some money so we can have our own place. A lot of gears spinning over here. So... Uh, Don't worry, I'm not taking time away from the podcast, uh, putting all my time into the podcast and making moves so that we can have a even better podcast in the future. Got to lay the foundation uh, now so we can eventually reach the sky. So anyways, enough about that. Can't do this without supporters. The links are in the description please go and follow up. And of course, you can send us a Venmo, Cash App, PayPal. Uh, Please do so. That really does support the show. Uh, Bitcoin, it's a really big help to receive those donations. Ko-Fi, all the links are in the description. Wherever you prefer to support the show, you can do that with a one-time donation uh, donation, uh, on the app of your choice, whatever you like to use. Whether it's $5, $10, send me $5 today if you like this episode. That would make my day. And you know what? We'll even give everybody who sends $5 today a shout out on the next episode. So thank you so much to The Hit Kit, our number one sponsor here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Our only sponsor so far. The Hit Kit makes some incredible products that are even making bongs now. The Hit Kit is the number one way to keep your blunts, your joints, whatever you're rolling, whatever you're smoking, keep it safe and sound, locked away. Uh, They have safety stash boxes that are childproof. They have uh, these awesome cases that hold your lighter. Go and check it out. TheHitKit.us is the website, or you can go to 
The Hit Kit on Instagram. Hitkit.us or The Hit Kit on Instagram. So anyways, I'm sure you guys have heard me say that a bunch of millions of times. And uh, hopefully you'll tune into more outros because I do plan on bringing more to each episode you know uh, for a while now the outros have just been promotional sort of like a house cleaning type of thing Um, as other shows say right just kind of updating you guys on what's going on in my life what's going on with the show asking you guys to support if you're like me you listen to the whole episode I know most people don't listen to the whole episode I don't know why Uh, Maybe I just have OCD, but if I start listening to a podcast, there's got to be a really good reason for me to not finish listening to it. So, yeah, I appreciate everybody who sticks with me and makes it to the outro. So to you, thank you, folks, and thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in to this show. Look forward to another new episode uh, coming out this week. The next guest is Hope De La Mora. So look forward to that and uh until then immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now mftic Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robbing for his plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade